Happy Mother's Day. Let's get into the Word. Acts chapter 10 is where we're going to be at today on this Mother's Day. Mothers, I'm going to give you the very best gift you can get, and that is God's Word. Amen? Amen. Uh, Acts chapter 10, we're going to look at the entire chapter, verses 1 through 48. So if you'll turn there, Acts chapter 10, verses 1 through 48. Please follow along as I read. At Caesarea there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort. A devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius. And he, st- and he stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon, a tanner, by, uh, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who had spoken to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him, and, and having related to the, uh, everything to them, he sent them to Joppa the next day. As they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up onto the housetop from the sixth hour, about the sixth hour, to pray. And he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air, and there came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. And Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time, What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. Now, while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision that he had seen might mean, behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate and called to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. And Peter went down to the men and said, I am the one you are looking for. What is the reason you are coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man who was well spoken uh, of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by an angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. So he invited them in to be his guests. The next day he rose and went with them. And uh, some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. And on the following day, they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted, lifted him up, and uh, saying, Stand up, I too am a man. And as they talked with him, he went in and found many persons gathered. 
And he said to them, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked then why you sent for me. And Cornelius said four days ago, about this hour, I was praying in my house at the ninth hour, and behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your, prayers has, your prayer has been heard, and your alms have been remembered before God. Send therefore to Joppa, and ask for Simon, who is called Peter, for he is lodging in the house of Simon at Tanner by the sea. So I sent for you at once, and you have been kind enough to come. Now, therefore... We are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly, I understand that God shows no partiality. But in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. And for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee, after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth, the, the Holy Spirit, with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are his witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear not to all the people but to us who had been chosen by God as his witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to remain for some days. Can we pray together and ask God for his help as we get into his word today? Father, we thank you for Acts chapter 10. We thank you for this monumental moment and story which shows us how the bridge went from Israel to the Gentiles, how the gospel was moved uh, to this uh, home of Cornelius and how he received Christ. God, we thank you for the fact that your goodness, your good news is not just for one nation, one ethnic group, one people, but it is for the whole world and that includes us. We are here today because of the global reality of the gospel message. We thank you for that, God. Help us today as we get into this, that we might see your truth. Help me to communicate your truth, not mine. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I want to preach to you this morning on these four words, God shows no partiality. Can we say that together? God shows no partiality. I think I only heard three of you. Try it again. God shows no 
partiality. A news writer wrote a piece of satirical news, and he talked about two apples who were having a conversation in a tree. And as they hung out in this tree, they looked over all of humanity, and they saw all of the divisions and the fighting. And one apple said to another, he said, you know, before this is all over, there are going to be no humans left, and apples will rule the world. The second apple looked at him and said, which ones, the red ones or the green ones? You see, sometimes it feels as if division is baked into society, into the reality of what it means to just simply be alive. But we've got to go all the way back to Genesis. While God created Adam and Eve to live in unity, which they did for a moment, utter unity with God and with each other, Sin entered the world, and as soon as sin entered the world, divisions entered the world. Blame entered the world. It was not a Mother's Day message. It was Adam saying, Lord, it was the woman you gave me. (laughs) Blame shifting. Division. Partiality. And yes, then, because of this sin that has entered into the world, there is indeed, listen to this, divisions baked into the reality of what it means to be humans. Because we are born, broken, disconnected, divided from God, we are also divided from one another. And I would argue that our division has a lot to do with self-idolatry and self-preservation. Meaning, prejudice isn't the root sin, but rather prejudice is a fruit sin. Here's Here's what I mean. Humans idolize our culture, our traditions, our habits, and our assumptions. Humans protect our culture, our traditions, our habits, and our assumptions. Our culture, our traditions, our habits, and our assumptions become our prized possessions. And then if someone comes along with a different culture, traditions, habits, and assumptions, they are a threat to the preservation of our own culture, traditions, habits, and assumptions. Are you with me? if people come along who are different, if those who prize their culture and traditions and habits and assumptions have the power and ability to oppress those who have different cultures and traditions and habits and assumptions and use them in order to preserve their own culture, traditions, habits, and assumptions, they have historically always done so. Today, we live in, we live in a, a, a reality, a, a culture, a world that I would just simply call hopelessness. There's just a sense of hopelessness, almost as if this bubble of positivity has popped. And there is left only despair and disillusion. 
the revolution of the 1960s did not deliver what those in the 1960s hoped it would deliver. The multiculturalism of the 1980s and the 1990s did not deliver what those in the 80s and 90s hoped it would deliver. Having our first black president in 2008 did not deliver what we had hoped it would deliver. Because 2012 happened, and 2013 happened, and 2014 happened, and 2015 happened, and 2016 happened, and 2017 happened, and then 2018 happened, and then 2019 happened, and God forbid, 2020 happened. And here we are, in this climate of hopelessness, despair, disillusion, and division. How wonderful is it that we can, in this climate, look at verse 34 and say, God shows no partiality. God shows no partiality. In our current 2021 COVID-19, George Floyd homicide, criminal justice reform, Asian hate, white suspicion, immigration debate culture, we can look at the world and we can say our God shows no partiality. Now this phrase in verse 34, our God, or or God shows no partiality, this phrase, listen to this, is only found in Christian literature. Nowhere else in all of the ancient writings will you find a phrase that says God shows no partiality. You can study all of the histories of the Greco-Roman gods. You can study all of the histories of the Greek philosophers and the ancient gods of the world, and you will never find the phrase outside of Christian writings, God shows no partiality. It's because every other God was a God of culture and country. Every other God was a God of nations and nationalism, a nationalistic God. But you see, the Christians came along, or I should say Israel came along, which birthed this movement which we now call global Christianity, and they said something that no other religion had ever said, and that was that this God is not tied to a nation. This God is not tied to a culture. This guy is not, God is not tied to a country. But this God shows no partiality. The other religions would not have had the boldness to say that. Because that would threaten their culture and traditions and habits and assumptions. You see what I'm saying? I swear I'm not going to say those four words my entire message. But I hope I made my point. We get to Acts chapter 10 and 11. And I believe these two chapters are the center theme of the book. Or at least the idea is very central to Acts. Why do I think that? It's because Luke, the writer of Acts, takes two chapters to tell the story of Cornelius. And he tells it in two different ways. We're going to look at it this week, and we're going to look at it again next week. The, the, The sheer number of words that Luke uses on this Cornelius story tells us that this story is center. It is the central act of the book of Acts. 
what we see is that the gospel goes from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to what? What's the fourth? To the, come on church, the uttermost parts of the earth, a.k.a. the Gentiles. How does the gospel get from this nation, from this people, from this ethnic group of Israel to the world, to cover the globe? We see that bridge, we see that shift take place in these two chapters, Acts chapter 10 and Acts chapter 11, as we meet this Gentile named Cornelius. Now, brings me to a question. Did God in the Old Testament show partiality and then he changed when he got to the New Testament? Well, some might try to make that case. Some might show that God has always shown partiality to the Hebrews. And by the way, I would say that this text is a good text even when we are discussing the faith with our Hebrew Israelite friends. Forget what color Israel was. Let's ask a deeper question. Did God, does God show partiality to the Hebrews? Are you with me? Well, quick answer is no. Even in the Old Testament, God was not a God of partiality. In the law itself, in Deuteronomy chapter 10, verses 17 through 18, it says, For the Lord your God is the God of gods and the Lord of lords, meaning he is global. The great, the mighty, the awesome God who does not show partiality nor take a bribe. He executes justice for the orphan, for the widow. Listen to this. He shows his love for the alien. That means the foreigner, the non-Jew. Shows his love for the alien by giving him food and clothing. It goes on to say in 2 Chronicles 19.7, Now let the fear of the Lord be upon you. Be very careful what you do. For the Lord our God will have no part in injustice or partiality or the taking of a bribe. God revealed in the Old Testament that central to his own character is impartiality. God has never been a God of partiality. It wasn't actually until this intertestamental period between the Old Testament and the New Testament, about a hundred years before Jesus was born, in a book called Jubilees, that we begin to see a dividing wall being built, not by God, but by the teachers of the law between Jew and Gentile. So from Jubilees 22, verse 16, a non-Bible book, it says this, separate yourself from the nations and do not eat with them. Do not according to their works and become not their associate for their works are unclean and all their ways are, uh, are, are uh, an abomination and an uncleanness. Now, God did, however, have ceremonial laws for, for Israel, right? So uh, if you read through Deuteronomy, what you do see is that there were strict ceremonial laws. Don't eat this meat. Well, you can eat this meat. Don't wear this kind of clothing. Well, you can wear this clothing. Don't trim your beard this way, but trim your beard that way. The ceremonial laws were meant to carve out the people of Israel, not 
in the sense of showing impartiality, but rather so God's glory might be made known even in the Old Testament to the nations. Israel was to be a loving testament to the Gentiles. And so what we see in the New Testament is not a different God or as if God changed or became more generous or more impartial, but we rather see the unfolding of what God has always been up to and doing through the people of Israel, and now it's rolling out, and the man's name is Cornelius. So let's, let's get to know Cornelius a little bit. Cornelius while not saved, is a seeker of sorts. He's not a Jewish convert. There is never any sense in which he is a worshiper of God. However, he does seem to be a praying man, or he is a praying man, and he seems to be seeking after God. He wants to know truth. He is a centurion. That means he's a powerful person in the Roman military. He's a good dude. He's generous. And it says that God's, uh, God, God, God hears the prayers of Cornelius, and God in His grace decides to answer Cornelius' prayers and to reveal to Cornelius Himself, to reveal to Cornelius salvation. In verse 2, he gets a vision. The vision initially freaks him out. An angel appears, and it probably would freak you out as well. And the angel says, hey, there is this guy named Peter. He's with a tanner in Joppa. Go get him, and he's going to reveal a word to you about who God is. So he immediately comes out of this vision, sends three people to go find Peter in Joppa. Now, crazy thing comes next. The following day, Peter is praying at noon and gets hungry which often happens when I pray as well. I don't know why prayer and hunger go together. That might be a sermon in and of itself. Peter gets hungry, and uh, and, and so they start making some food. While While they're grilling the vegan burgers, Peter falls into a trance. Now, I should say that this is a non-drug induced trance. I feel like that has to be said. Uh, Drugs were never used with these visions, all right? God, in his sovereignty just puts Peter into this state of psychosis and shows him a vision. And in this vision, a big sheet is being let down. And the, the scriptures tell us in verse 12 that on the sheet there were all kinds of animals. All kinds would mean that on the sheet there were both clean and unclean, ceremonially unclean animals. And God says to Peter, as Peter looks at this outdoor world sort of smorgasbord, God says to Peter, rise, in verse 13, kill and eat. Now Peter initially objects, like, I I, I can't do this. Look at verse 14, he says, by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything common or unclean. Peter is still living according to these ceremonial laws, And he's saying, I have not defiled myself by eating something that is ceremonially ceremonially unclean. Peter also likely is influenced by the traditions of the day. Which means that you don't eat anything that Gentiles would eat. You don't associate with Gentiles. You don't hang out with them. So God 
says, the voice comes again uh, a second time, and, and it says this, what God has made clean, do not call common. Now this happens three times. And finally, Peter gets it. And when Peter gets it, the, the vision is gone, and all of a sudden he is back on the rooftop. Now, as he comes out of the, uh, the, the, the trance, the doorbell rings. Cornelius' men are outside. And these guests who show up quickly help Peter to kind of put two and two together and know what this vision of eating all kinds of meat was really about. What Peter realizes, I believe probably immediately, is that God shows no partiality. There is a man named Cornelius who is a Gentile, and he needs to hear about Jesus. God shows no partiality. Question, church, do you? Do you show partiality? While this story details how the gospel goes to the Gentiles, this story also teaches us something about our own gospel witness, doesn't it? Peter would not have had a gospel witness if he allowed social divisions to keep him from hanging out with Cornelius. We will not have a gospel witness if we are a people of social division. So how do we not show partiality? I'm going to give you two steps. Step one, social divisions must come down. Social divisions must come down. You know, I believe if Peter was black and Cornelius was white, the vision would have been a big sheet, and on that sheet would have been green bean casserole and blue box mac and cheese and, and uh, uh, chicken baked with, seasoned with just a little bit of butter. There is something about cross-cultural missions that's about to, about to happen here. Meaning your stereotypes, which by the way, stereotypes are not always true, just come to my kitchen sometime, all right? Just got to say that. We don't all just season with a little bit of butter. <laughs> but our social divisions come down so that we can have a broader, better, God, more godly gospel witness. Cross-cultural missions demands that our social div divisions come down. The, the vision here, then, is, is not just about meat. This isn't just simply a call for vegetarians to go out for lunch at Fogo de Chop. This isn't about food, but rather the vision is about people. Let me show you where I see that in, this, in the text. Look at verses 17 through 23. As Peter contemplates what he just saw, his, his, uh, his confusion turns into confidence. He, he, he begins to realize that this vision I saw is not just simply a green light 
to have some pork ribs. But rather, what God is telling me is something about people, about my engagement and interaction with people. Now, I should say this, that we are not dealing with here a call to get rid of social differences, but rather we are dealing with the call to get rid of social divisions. You see, we all are going to have our customs and our food and our culture, ethnicity. We're not calling to get rid of these things. We're saying these things should not divide us. That we should not write one another off because we have differences in these ways. So, meaning, I, I, I cannot say that I will not associate with this person because this person comes from a different background, a different culture. I don't like their habits. I don't like their ways of life. I can't say that. This is not about food, but rather it is about people. Meaning, if God did not deal with Peter's culture of eating, Peter would have not dealt with Cornelius' call for help. God, give us help to, to, to not ignore the need that someone might have because they have a different custom, food, culture, and ethnicity than us. Help us to break down these barriers so that we might sit long enough, so that we might linger long enough, so that we might talk long enough, so that we might to get, someone, get to know someone enough in order to share the hope, the light of Jesus Christ. In verse 24, Peter finally arrives at Cornelius' house, and Cornelius has gathered his friends and family there. Listen, let me say that again. Cornelius has gathered his friends and his family there. Imagine if, if Peter refused to go to Cornelius' house because of social divisions. Oh, what a gospel opportunity he would have missed. Cornelius was eagerly awaiting with his people this messenger and this word. Uh, this word. Now, initially, when Peter shows up, Cornelius is a little confused. Cornelius thinks that Peter is the answer. He is this godlike man. And so as soon as Peter shows up, Cornelius falls down and worship him. And Peter's like, yo, yo, yo. Stand up, verse 26. I too am a man. I am not some deity. I am not some eternal figure. I am not the answer. But Peter came to deliver a message of who the answer is. Now, again, I want to emphasize that the vision that Peter saw was not just about meat. And here's where I see that. Look at verse 28. So Peter responds to Cornelius after Cornelius gives somewhat of a recap of what, what has happened. Peter says... In verse 28, you yourselves know how unlawful it is to associate with or to visit any other nation. But God, look, look at this, has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. You see right there in verse 28 where he says person. He doesn't say food. He's not saying it's okay for us to eat together. It's actually a whole lot bigger than food. He says God has shown me 
that I should not call any person common or unclean. Any person. There is nobody in this world that God looks at and says, oh, they're just common. They are just regular. They are just for common use. They are unclean. But God has said there is no person in this entire globe, there is no culture, country, background, family that he writes off as merely common. And so therefore, I am not allowed to say this person is just regular. This person is just common. They are too common for, my, for me to interact with. Two questions, church, that, we, that this leads us to. Number one, do social divisions mess with our church? Let's just let that sit with us. Do we allow social divisions to mess with our church? More than ever, we have to strive for the unity of the bond of peace. If we cannot display impartiality, love, unity, as a church, how are we ever going to have an impact on Pennsylvania Avenue or in Marshall Gardens or to the ends of the earth? You see, the world doesn't allow for conversation. Only the church. You see, the church ought to be the safest place for us to sit down and say, you said this, and I thought you mean this, and I think you mean this. Could you explain to me what you, what you meant by that? Okay, well, you, in your answer, you just offended me, and I, 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 I now want to depart from you, but I'm not going to because we are united by the blood of Jesus Christ. So can you explain to me what you meant in the way that you just offended me? Okay, so I think I understand what you're saying. I totally disagree with you, but I believe that, that you are bought by the blood of Jesus Christ, and I'm going to take the Lord's Supper with you anyway. You see, the church is the place for that. And if we can't display that here, we're not going to have an impact anywhere else. There is no partiality in, among us because our God shows no partiality. Secondly, second question. What social divisions prevent you in your gospel witness? What kind of person might you hesitate lingering with? Being hospitable toward. Having into your home. Going into their home. Because of social divisions. I don't know if we would have any good conversation. It would be awkward. They probably wouldn't like me. They probably wouldn't want me. What social divisions cause you to hesitate in your gospel witness to the very people that God might be trying to save right now? Step two. So step one, this is the Joel Kerr's two-step, all right? Step, <laughs> I say the stupidest thing sometimes. After every sermon, my wife was like, I was cringing so bad. <laughs> it just comes in my head, and it comes out. 
Step one, social divisions must come down. Step two, spiritual divisions must be dealt with. Spiritual divisions must be dealt with. You see, partiality is kind of interesting. It's actually very interesting to me why anyone in our society wants impartiality. What I mean by that is, well, let me ask it another way. Why does anybody in our society want an equitable society? Why does anybody in our society want justice? It boggles my mind, actually, as to why people argue for these things, and I'll tell you why. It's because our society has, at the same time, removed the, va- the very foundation of justice. We've removed the very foundation of impartiality. And we've, we, we've basically embraced a godless view of reality, yet at the same time trying to cling to some things that God talks about. You see what I'm saying? Meaning, evolutionary theory is not equitable. Evolutionary theory is, says nothing of impartiality. As a matter of fact, in evolutionary theory, the strong survive. The only reason that any of us are here according to evolutionary theory is because we were part of those who destroyed all of the others. And so then we have to ask, why all of a sudden do we want impartiality? Look, how great is it that we can quote verse 34 and say, our God shows no partiality. Now look, I'm not trying to change your mind on the impartiality stuff. Praise God that you think that way. But let me give you the foundation for it because that's what we have. We have the foundation for unity in the gospel. And so that's why I say, in order for us to truly show impartiality, not only do social divisions have to come down, but secondly, spiritual divisions must be dealt with. It's not just simply about multiculturalism. Uh, Imagine a place filled with every ethnicity and language. No one is greater than another. What place did I just describe? Some of you might say heaven, but I also just described hell. Someone once said to me, I was talking about multicultural this and that, he said, Joel, multiculturalism isn't the goal. If that's your only goal, you're going to go to hell. Because hell is one of the the most multicultural places you're going to find. (laughs) if if multiculturalism isn't the goal here in Acts 10, then what is it? If impartiality alone is not the goal, then what is it? If diversity is not the goal, then what is it? Well, uh, here's the answer, all right? Jesus is the goal. Romans chapter 1 verse 16 says, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation to all who believe, to the Jew first and then to the Greek. Diversity is not the power of God. Equity is not the power of God. Justice is not even the power of God. The gospel is the power of God, meaning what we have in the gospel of Jesus Christ undergirds all of these other wonderful things that we're going after. Are you with me? And it is, a, it is a phenomenal power that can bring the strong to his knees. 
that can strengthen and build up the weak. The Gospel is the power of God unto salvation to all who believe. So I'm not calling us to sit around a fire tonight and sing Kumbaya as if that is the end goal. I'm calling us to be a people who proclaim how spiritual divisions have been dealt with by Jesus Christ, blood shed on the cross of Calvary for the forgiveness of our sins. So in verses 30 through 33, Cornelius gives the background and explains why Peter is there. And I love verse 33. He says, Now therefore we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. Oh, for the lost to have ears to hear. Oh, for the lost to invite you to come into their home. And when you get there, they say, Look, we, got, we just want to hear and receive everything that you have to tell us. Before you go to share the gospel with somebody, do you pray and ask God to give them ears to hear what you have to say? Oh, if you are in this room and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, I pray that even now you have ears to hear so that you might receive the message that I'm about to tell you that Peter told Cornelius, that you might be saved. So it begins then, Peter opens his mouth and Peter begins proclaiming to Cornelius the message he was sent to proclaim. In verse 34, he says these four wonderful words, God shows no partiality. And then I want to highlight six statements that he makes, which shows how this impartial God is unifying people with him and then also people with people. Statement number one, God accepts those from every nation who fear him and does what is right. Everybody say, every nation. God accepts those from every nation who fear him and does what is right. Verse 35, every nation. Meaning, there is not a European God and an African God and an Asian God and an American God. But everybody in every nation across the globe who does what is right finds this God, the God, the global God, to be their God. Leads me to a question. What does he mean by does what is right? Is he teaching her a works-based salvation? Well, absolutely not, because in the very breath, he tells us what he means by does what is right. And that is the gospel message that we find in verses 36 through 43. And he ends, I'm jumping ahead, but he ends with a call to believe and to receive. So everybody who, re, who believes and receives this gospel message that he's about to proclaim can say that this God is indeed my God. Second statement. Jesus preached the good news of peace, verse 36 as well. That word peace is this Jewish idea of shalom. And shalom is this idea of a connection, wholeness, a relationship with God, but also a connection, wholeness, and relationships with each other, with our fellow man. 
Jesus, he says, preached this good message of how that comes about. Third statement. He is, speaking of Jesus, the Lord of all. He's the Lord of all, verse 36. Meaning he's the Lord of those Christians in Thailand, and he's the Lord of the Christians in Towson. He's the Lord of Christians in Bolivia, and he's the same Lord of Christians in Baltimore. Isn't this amazing? That the, 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 the same Lord is the Lord of somebody who looks and speaks a different language and is totally different from who you are. They have different customs that you know nothing of, and if you met each other, you probably would not be able to interact at all, and He is the Lord of both of you. He's the Lord of all who call on His name. Number four, Jesus is God's anointed to destroy all oppression. Verse 38. So this God-man, Jesus Christ, is anointed by God to destroy the oppression of the devil. That word oppression is used there. And it's a word for all of the devil's acts. Meaning all kinds of real oppression that we face has Satan as its founder and its father. And Jesus Christ, this anointed God-man, has come to destroy the works of the devil, to destroy oppression. And somebody ought to say hallelujah. Thank you. Number five, they put him to death, but God raised him up. They put him to death, but God raised him up in verses 39 and 40. So you see this choice servant, this God-man, this one anointed by God, was the choice servant to die, chosen to suffer. And there he hung on the cross. And as he died, our division was placed on him. Our, 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 our social divisions was placed on him. Meaning, all of those ceremonial laws that distinguished, that marked out, that separated God's people from the nations, all of that was fulfilled in Jesus. Jesus became the representative of the people of God. As he died on the cross, all of our uncleanness was placed on him so that we might be made clean. And all who find themselves in Jesus find themselves ceremonially pure and clean before God. But not just our social divisions. He took our spiritual divisions. This great division between us and God, the penalty for sin, which is death and hell and the grave, was placed onto Jesus on the cross of Calvary, and He died, paying the penalty for our sin. And if He stayed in the grave, we would have no clue and no hope as to whether or not Jesus actually paid it all. But the grave couldn't hold him. Verses 41 and 42. He rose again. And he says, we were eyewitnesses of this. Like we were hanging out with him. And then he, he Jesus, told us to take this message to you. 
to all of the world. Statement number five. I think I'm on five. I don't know. Another statement. (laughs) He is the one appointed by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. Verse 42. Meaning all then, Jew, Gentile, everybody from every ethnicity, tribe, language, will stand before God. There is nobody, not one human, who has ever lived and ever will live. The biggest and the most powerful human being that you can think of. The biggest enemy in your life. Everybody will stand before Jesus. And Jesus will be the judge. And he will judge you on that day based on how you received him in this day. He will separate us into two camps, the living and the dead. The dead would be those who have rejected Jesus Christ. And they will be assigned a place in eternal torment, which is called the lake of fire forever. Those who are given life, they are called the living. And they will be granted more bounty and joy and stuff and earth than you can ever imagine. They will live with God forever, reigning in the new heavens and the new earth. May we all be found in Jesus Christ on that day. I pray that there is not one in this room who will reject Jesus now and be assigned with the dead. Come to Christ. Come to Christ. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Well, how do we come to Christ? This is my last sixth statement. Everyone who believes in Him receives forgiveness of sins through His name. Verse 43. You see, this is the message that Cornelius needed to hear. It wasn't some some fancy, like, secret big idea. It wasn't a list of commands and to-dos and laws. What Cornelius needed to hear was how to deal with his sin. How can a sinner stand before an infinitely holy God? That was the message that Cornelius needed to hear, and that is the message that you need to hear today, church. What does God do with our sin? How do we get rid of our sin? How can we ever stand before God? The answer is right here. In verse 43, everyone who believes in Him receives forgiveness of sins through His name. The multinational, multicultural, multilinguistic, multi-country problem is the same, and that is sin. This division haunts all of us, and Jesus dealt with it. He dealt with our spiritual divisions. As the, as the songwriter said, Jesus paid it all. All to him then I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. Have you ever come to Jesus for the forgiveness of sins? 
Have you ever believed that Jesus Christ can forgive your debt before God? Church, Jesus alone has that power. Jesus can do it. Jesus has the the power to forgive your sin against a holy God. So therefore, do not delay. Run to Him in His forgiveness right now. And embrace His forgiveness as your own. What a Savior He is. What a gospel of peace between God and between people. As the text closes, I want to draw your attention briefly to this final scene. In verses 44 through 46, the Holy Spirit of God fills Cornelius and the Gentiles as they receive the forgiveness of sins. And God confirms it as they immediately begin speaking in tongues. Now, speaking in tongues is not the normal sign to show that you are saved, as if that's something still going on today every time somebody gets saved. As a matter of fact, those who believe that miss the greater meaning and point and beauty as to why they spoke in tongues right here. Why did these Gentiles speak in tongues? Well, let's go back to Acts 2. When the Jews received the Holy Spirit, what did they do to show that they've got the Holy Spirit? They spoke in tongues. God is saying to us that the same Holy Spirit that filled the Jews in Acts 2 has filled the Gentiles in Acts chapter 10. Meaning there aren't two peoples of God, there aren't two baptisms, there aren't two spirits, but rather there is one people, one baptism, one spirit, one new humanity. This is the power of God and the salvation to all who believes. God shows no partiality. And listen to this. Since God has dealt with our spiritual divisions, we now have the power to deal with our social divisions. We deal with our social divisions so that we proclaim the God who shows no partiality. Years ago, back in the day, there was a Chicago bank that was looking to hire this young man from Boston. And so the Chicago bank wrote a letter back to his Boston employer, and they said, could you please give us a recommendation of your former employee uh, so that we might know whether or not we should hire him at our Chicago bank. And so the Boston employer immediately wrote back a raving recommendation. They couldn't praise him enough, and they said his father is a Cabot. His mother was a Lowell. Further back, he was, uh, was a happy blend of Stalstons, Peabody's, and other of Boston's first families. Well, the Chicago Bank found this recommendation to be utterly helpless. It was completely insufficient. They wrote back to the Boston employer, and they said, we are not contemplating using the young man for breeding purposes, just for work. How many of you know that God doesn't pick and choose his workmen based on family background? God doesn't pick and choose his workmen based on cultural heritage. 
God doesn't pick and choose His workmen based on national boundaries. God doesn't pick and choose His workmen who are simply the cultural elite. God doesn't pick and choose His workmen who are society's superlative. But rather, God qualifies the unqualified. God adopts the orphan. God is the father of the fatherless. God is the protector of the widow. And God is Savior of all who call on His name. As a matter of fact, the Bible tells us that God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of the world and the despised things of the world and, listen to this, the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. Naked, I come to Thee for dress. Helpless, look to Thee for grace. Foul I to Thy fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die.